And do remain standing with me, and uh, let's turn together uh, to the sermon scripture. Uh, you'll find it uh, once again tonight in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, if you were with us uh, last Lord's Day evening, uh, we provided a kind of uh, introduction uh, to this section about uh, the so-called qualifications of uh, elders and overseers in the Church of Jesus Christ. Uh, we're going to look this evening in much more detail about those uh, lists of qualifications, uh, especially in verses uh, 2 through 3. Uh, and then, Lord willing, uh, we'll pick up the study one more time next time, next Sunday evening, uh, beginning in verse uh, 4 and through the end of the section. Uh, but tonight we're in 1 Timothy 3, and uh, let me read uh, verses uh, 1 through 7 uh, in their entirety. Listen now, church, uh, to the word of God. This is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For, a man, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil." Uh, this is the word of the Lord. May he bless it now to our hearing. You may be seated. Shall we pray together? Father, thank you for the truth of what we just sang, that you are the God who leads us, the God who guides us, the God who gives us strength and grace to live each day. For when we look back on our lives, O oh Lord, we are able to see your wise providence, your loving care, your sovereignty, how you have overruled and guided us and upheld us every step of the way. And we thank you and we bless you. Help us now, uh, gracious Father, as we turn again now to this, uh, your word, and to these very practical and very helpful instructions that you have given through the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, to your church. Give us ears to hear, uh, hearts uh, to believe, and help us to obey for your eternal glory and our everlasting good, we pray this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the last time that we were together in 1 Timothy, uh, we saw that, as we read in verse 1, that if a man aspires to the office of the elder overseer, uh, bishop, 
as we have it here in the New King James Version, uh, Paul says it is a good work that he uh, desires. And while we observed at length uh, last Sunday evening that the ministry of the Word and the government of the church are matters of such great difficulty that it often struck terror into the minds of men of sound judgment uh, rather than to excite them to desire it, uh, we also noted that the desire of men for this office does not rest on confidence in their own virtue uh, or ability or industry, but on the assistance and help of God from the ministry of the Holy Spirit, from the grace of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, who alone is our sufficiency uh, and help. So says Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.5. It is therefore uh, in this confidence alone that God is our helper, uh, that a man might embark on this work, and this fact alone cannot but shape him uh, into being a humble servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we turn our attention now to the qualifications in the Bible for elders, uh, you should all understand that there is something intensely practical about all of this. Not only should a prospective elder, or a current elder for that matter, understand these qualifications, but every church member should be very familiar with them, because the time will inevitably come for every church member that he or she will be called upon to vote, to give approval for a candidate who stands before the congregation for the office of elder. And when the magnitude of this office uh, before God and in the presence of the church is considered uh, such a vote, which you have taken in the past and which you will uh, take again someday, should only be taken with the utmost sobriety and careful thought, uh, scripture study, uh, and prayer. Uh, this is all another way of saying, quite simply, that the church should be very careful uh, that it is not ordained to office men who do not demonstrate exemplary character. Uh, history is riddled with negative lessons when the church fails in this area. Now, it might be convenient for us to consider these qualifications then under an arrangement that just happens to be uh, alliterative, provided, I think it was, by David Murray in a very helpful article that he wrote, who has arranged them under three headings. Uh, and the three headings are these, character, conduct, and competence, uh, the three C's, uh, character, uh, conduct, and competence. Uh, they are in that order uh, intentionally. Uh, we naturally think of competence, uh, ability, uh, skill uh, first in our minds. That is how many ministerial forms are written when a church is seeking a new pastor. We want to know about your preaching ability and your teaching ability, your skill at conducting worship and at doing evangelism, your abilities in administration and organization and leadership and time management and so on. These are the things that churches and search committees typically list first and rate most highly in importance for prospective ministers. 
And you will notice upon careful reading that the great preponderance of attributes listed here concentrate nevertheless on a man's character, on his integrity, or on his conduct, or on his home life, or his marriage, and relatively little, very little, in fact, on his competence or his skill. It is not, of course, that competence or skill are unimportant, especially for the teaching office. There absolutely must be a minimum level of competence involved in learning, in aptitude, in speaking ability, in preparation, in communication, in human thought and reflection. If not, a man will not be able to effectively preach the word of God. But I say all of this to point out that we have likely made skill and ability and competency in a number of areas far too important and relatively downplayed the character and conduct of a man. And there is something of great significance about this. We are generally inclined to think that our churches will grow and people will come and our programs will be successful if and only if we have a strong, charismatic, impressive man up front whose preaching and teaching and leadership draw people by the hundreds, if not by the thousands. And that is certainly how things often seem to play out. And to be sure, God does from time to time bless his church with such figures. But I hope you will notice with me, uh, beloved, that there is no good reason to think that such figures will indeed be the norm, that they will be commonplace, nor even that the church should aspire to find them. Don't hear me incorrectly. This is meant to be no excuse for laziness or incompetence. Please don't take it the wrong way. It is simply that God is generally speaking in the business of going about things in rather ordinary ways. And he seems to be pleased by things and is happy to use things that do not seem to be particularly impressive or awe-inspiring to the world. What if all that God was really looking for were godly, faithful servants who humbly served and were faithful to the word, to the text of the Bible, and who preach sound doctrine? What if that was the norm throughout most of history? What if those were the means, the simple means, and they were sufficient for the growth and health and flourishing of the church of Christ. I don't need to remind you that some of the most phenomenally gifted teachers and preachers have had very spectacular and very public falls from grace. Many in our own day, a number of them in the last year or two that you have heard about, some even from within our own denomination, men who, though they were spectacularly gifted at speaking and at leadership, could not humbly lead a group of elders or could not manage their households or could not abstain from strong drink or did not remain faithful to their wives. And in some cases, men who were removed from the pastorate, who tweeted their repentance in public. Can you imagine that there is such a thing? 
and men who, professing Christians, were so convinced that they had to get back into ministry quickly, regardless of their lack of qualification. And we're told, we need you. You need to get back into the ministry now. And meanwhile, there were perhaps thousands of humble yet faithful men whose names you have never heard of who are seeking to preach the gospel in the churches. But they're not famous. They're not popular. They're not charismatic. And certainly not enough for many churches. These are warnings, beloved. Things have gotten wildly out of hand in the churches today. It's come to our attention in recent years, historians have helped us to understand this, that men as renowned as John Wesley and even the great George Whitfield had miserable home lives, terrible family lives, barely existent marriages, were largely negligent of their children, though they were revered for their preaching. It is something we must all consider. What are we looking for in a man sent to preach the gospel to us. And so we have the three C's, character, conduct, and competence. The most important qualification for a pastor is Christian character. Without this, he is disqualified. The elder overseer, the apostle Paul is saying, is a man who is being transformed by grace. In his heart, in his character, in his conduct, in his life and behavior, from what he once was to what Christ is making of him. Conduct comes second. This is the outward life of godly living that flows out of a godly character. And third is competence, the abilities and skills and gifts required for ministry, among them public speaking, administration, time management, leadership, decision-making, self-discipline. And I think in the modern church, sadly, the greatest focus is on competence with relatively little attention paid to conduct, even less to character. Uh, R.C. Anderson, in his pastoral theology, commented, quote, during the course of each school year, dozens of inquiries come across my desk regarding men who are being considered by churches and mission boards I am supposed to rate those individuals according to qualifications that are specified in the reference form. Without exception, he says, each inquires as to the abilities of the person being considered, his personality traits, and the talents of his wife. Rarely does a questionnaire deal with character traits. As strange as it sounds, dear friends, the Bible insists on character first conduct second, and competence last. I want you to think about why that sounds strange to our ears today. And I want you to think about why it may be that the Lord has made it to be this way. Now, when Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.1 that the elder overseer must be blameless, he does not mean, of course, that he must be sinlessly perfect. Uh, if that were the requirement... No man could ever be qualified, and only the Lord Jesus would be qualified to be our elder. 
And just in saying that, it's a reminder of a very stunning uh, reality that while our Lord Jesus might have ruled us from heaven without any human leadership here on earth in the church whatsoever, uh, he has not deemed it best to organize his church that way. He has seen fit in his infinite wisdom and grace to govern us through under-shepherds. Men, though sinful and imperfect, Paul says, are to be blameless. What it means is that they will be without any great defect in character or conduct that would be notorious or infamous or cause scandal and therefore render such a man ineffective in the carrying out of his ministry. If a man were known to be violent or abusive or profane or a drunk or greedy or obsessed with money, if he were sexually immoral or dishonest or any number of other things such as these, he cannot be considered qualified for ministry. John Calvin writes, quote, he must not be marked by any infamy that would lessen his authority. And so you see the connection. The elder overseer is an office of spiritual authority in the church of Jesus Christ. Such a man cannot have his authority compromised by a character unbecoming a professing Christian. So let him be chosen from men who have a good and honorable reputation. Though not perfect, he is to be above reproach irreproachable, without blame, in light of the whole picture. Second, he is to be the husband of one wife, still now in verse 2. Uh, again, this is a reminder, we've said this already, that the office of elder, according to the Bible and the New Testament teaching, is for men only. And the text does not say that he is to be, or the person is to be a person of one spouse, though such language was available to the Apostle Paul, but a husband, which is a male a man of marriageable age, of one wife. The gender of both words is quite clear. Much has been debated about if this means that a man who has previously been divorced can serve the church as an elder. We have generally taken the position that if a man divorced before his conversion uh, to Jesus Christ and is now remarried as a Christian or perhaps even single as a Christian, that that man can indeed serve uh, as an elder. The most obvious application, however, is a rejection of polygamy, which was, of course, rampant in the ancient world, uh, even within Judaism, as you know. It was also not uncommon uh, common among the ancients for a man to have a wife at home to keep house, to bear children, and to raise the children, and to care for the children, and for the same man also to keep a mistress on the side to provide him sexual gratification. And Paul's instruction clearly rules out both possibilities, polygamy or the keeping of a woman on the side, and rules them out as utterly incompatible with Christian character. Uh, if a man is married, he is to be married only to one woman, and he is to remain sexually faithful to her in the bonds of marriage. 
We might apply that further by saying he is therefore to be self-controlled in sexual matters and as pertains to sexual purity. Now, it's a bit off uh, aside, but I want you to see why we part ways here with the Roman Catholic Church uh, on this matter. Uh, While Rome holds to the necessity of a celibate priesthood, uh, we see very clearly here an indication that bishops, uh, pastors, overseers, those in spiritual leadership in the church are permitted, if not even encouraged, to marry and to be married. Now, I very much understand and appreciate that singleness uh, permits a man to be uh, devoted to the work of the church without entanglements at home uh, in a way that the married life does not. However, we also uh, believe that the example of a married pastor with a wife and with children, with a family at home, is a healthy thing for the church of Jesus Christ. And let us be reminded that the priests of old, under the old covenant, were married. That there is no prohibition anywhere in the Bible for pastors. They are not prohibited from marrying. And it may very well be the case that a celibate priesthood in the Roman Catholic Church has at least contributed to the horrors of pedophilia and the sexual abuse scandals in the church. But let him, Paul says, be a one-woman man, the husband of one wife. Hendrickson comments, quote, an elder must be a man of unquestioned morality, one who is entirely true and faithful to his one and only wife. And beloved, because of the times in which we live, I just observe with you how clearly the Bible even in places like these where marriage is not the main subject matter, uh, nevertheless affirms that the marriage institution that is established by God in creation is the marriage of one man uh, to one woman, period, end of discussion. This is how it was from the beginning. This is how for us in the church it always shall be. Men can change. They can change the words of the Bible. They can change the definitions if they please, but not without doing the gravest offense to the God who instituted marriage and made it so, and surely not without incurring his wrath. Man has no authority to change what God himself established in his work and in his holy word. Now third, he is to be temperate. Uh, sober-minded, of good behavior. Uh, The word translated temperate can also mean sober. He is to be free from uh, intoxicating influences, uh, not prone to great extremes of behavior. He's to be self-controlled, of a sound mind, modest, uh, chaste, regulating his outward behavior, There is a certain soundness of mind and of discipline that Paul has in mind here. He is not irrational, does not easily fly off the handle and fly into fits. He is of good behavior and respectable. Uh, Literally, it means well-ordered. 
decent, virtuous. Ladies, it is the same word used to describe the appropriate modest dress of women back in chapter 2. In fact, it's the only, these are the only two instances of this word in the New Testament. There is a certain decency and orderliness to this man. He is to be hospitable. It is a wonderful word. I want to draw your attention to it. Philo xenos, literally, love of strangers. It's funny and a bit interesting that the word xenophobic has been used in our current presidential campaign. This is quite literally the exact opposite Greek word. The elder is not a xenophobe, but a xenophile. He loves strangers. Uh, we saw this uh, this morning uh, from the encouragement in Hebrews 13. Don't forget to entertain strangers, for in so doing some have entertained uh, angels unawares. This is likely more than merely having church members over for lunch after the morning service. It is a willingness to open the home to those in need, to those traveling through, to visiting missionaries or pastors, perhaps. And travel was common in the ancient world, but good hotels and motels and safe accommodations were hard to come by were not at all what they are today. A traveling stranger needed a safe place to spend the night, a bed to sleep in, and food to eat to be refreshed. And the elder overseer is desirous of welcoming such people into the home and giving them warm accommodation. And here is a little hint, isn't there? of the way that spiritual leadership in the church touches on the home and the family life. Uh, there's a role for all to play. There's a willingness on the part of every family member. Uh, it is best when there is buy-in from the wife and the children, from the whole family. He might even consider, if he has the means, if the home is adequate and ready to receive visitors, uh, even on relatively short notice to make sure that the home is a welcome and warm and conducive place to bring a stranger. Uh, now, every Christian ought to be hospitable. We saw that this morning in Hebrews 13. Uh, but the elder overseer's family should set an example uh, for all. Another necessary quality uh, is that an elder, sh elder should be able to teach. Here we are clearly touching on the area of competency and skill. Obviously, there are different degrees of ability and of giftedness in this area. All of us have been astonished and blessed at the abilities given by God to some teachers. This does not mean, of course, that the gift of teaching cannot be cultivated, that it should not be improved and strengthened. Surely it can be, and surely it should be. But all leaders in the church should know their Bible. They should be able to apply the word of God to all kinds of human situations and do so with wisdom and discernment and correct scriptural understanding. 
When it says uh, not given to wine, uh, the meaning is not given to drunkenness, not addicted to wine. Uh, today we might say someone who does not drink to excess, someone who is not an alcoholic, who uses wine if he uses it uh, only in moderation. I do remind you that total uh, abstention was not generally practiced uh, in the ancient world. I won't repeat the lessons of Genesis 9 with Noah. We've discussed them at great length uh, recently, but you all know the degree to which drinking to excess, drunkenness, uh, alcoholism uh, ruins lives, uh, leads to other terrible sins, uh, causes men and women who drink to excess to lose judgment and inhibition and behave in ways utterly unbecoming uh, of a child of God. And I remind you, too, beloved, that in the church, drunkenness and addiction to alcohol are prohibited not just for the elders, uh, but for all. Not violent, uh, not a striker, as the King James has it. He is not a contentious person. He is not a brawler. He is not prone to violence or to starting fights. Can it be any accident uh, that Paul lists drunkenness and violence and their opposites together? Paul would have known just what you and I know, that all too often the two go together uh, in men who become excessively angry and violent and prone to fighting uh, when they drink to excess and become drunk. Not greedy for money. It's another remarkable word. Uh, just as love of strangers, here is love of money, literally love of silver, though with the negative attached. So not a lover of money. Same word as in Hebrews 13.5. It's interesting to me to note that the encouragements to every Christian in Hebrews 13 encouraging hospitality, keeping the marriage bed undefiled, not loving money and trusting God and not coveting are common to all Christians and are applied here to elders. He is not covetous. The 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's house or anything that belongs to your neighbor. He is not filled with greed or envy for what other people have. He is free from materialism. He is not dominated or over-influenced by a desire for financial gain. Now, these are extreme cases, I know. But think of the televangelist uh, whose entire ministry, it seems, often is centered around separating people from their money. Sow a seed of faith. Uh, send us $1,000. And God will give you your miracle. Creflo Dollar, do you know the name? Aptly named uh, televangelist. Told his congregation recently, very publicly, that he needed a new $65 million jet. He already had one. But he told his church God was telling him he had to have a new one to make his travels around the world for ministry uh, easier. 
The elder overseer is not filled with the love of money. He is not dominated by or over-influenced by materialism and financial gain. Further, he is gentle. It's the opposite, really, isn't it, of violent? He's not quarrelsome, not argumentative. He doesn't look for a fight, love a fight, verbal or otherwise. He doesn't always have to be right, to have his way, to make his point, to prove others wrong. This one cuts to the heart. I've been learning this over many years. I believe I've been quarrelsome more so than I have needed to be. It's the grace of God, I trust, at work in me that I've begun to see this and wish to be freed from it. Well, dear friends, here you have a beginning of the character, uh, the conduct, uh, the competency required for the man who seeks the office of elder, overseer, bishop, pastor in the church of God. We'll stop there tonight. Uh, next week, by God's grace, we'll turn our attention more to his home life and to his family. Uh, let us now bow then before the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, there are times, I suppose, that we wish we could be ruled solely from heaven by your word and spirit and by the command and ministry of Christ in our hearts. But you have seen fit, O Lord, to give to your church elder overseers, bishop pastors, spiritual leaders to minister grace to your congregations. I suppose, O oh Lord, as we hear a sermon like this tonight, every one of us present can think of counterexamples, men who have failed us and not been a good example to us. Help us, O oh Lord, not to be clouded, not to have our vision of Christ obscured by the many failures of men. But we thank you as well, O Lord, for the many good and faithful, godly and true, Christ-like servants whom you have raised up over the centuries to faithfully serve your church. Men who, though not perfect, though sinful like the rest of us, nevertheless exemplified Christian character and Christian conduct and lived before the church and showed us how to be more like Christ. We thank you for them, for their faithful and godly example, for their humble service, for their teaching us the way that we ought to go. And as we narrow the focus even more to our own situation, O oh Lord, we pray that you would purify our hearts and our lives and make us holy, elders and officers and members alike, 
that you, O Lord, would be pleased to bless this congregation at this time and in days ahead with such leaders that will glorify your holy name, will be no scandal to the church, and will bless these dear members whom our Lord Jesus has purchased with his own precious blood. And this we ask for Jesus' sake.